Well, good morning. I know it's the new year, it's January, but I have one last Christmas gift I'd like to give away. Um, I have this very nice ESV study Bible that actually belongs to one of you. It's been here for a few weeks, Um, so uh, I'm sure you have other Bibles at home, uh, whoever you may be that you're reading, Uh, but this is very nice. I I was looking through it. I mean, the study notes are incredible, and I can actually read the text. So if you happen to be here or it's you online watching, just know we have this Bible here available. We'll leave it out on the table there in the hallway for you to pick it up at your convenience. Okay. Merry Christmas. So... Well, um, it is that time of year again, uh, and you know what that means, right? It's resolution time, right? Resolution time. Um, At the start of each year, millions of people, if not billions of people all over the world, uh, love to make um, New Year's resolutions, usually of personal transformation of sorts, Uh, whether it be the desire to lose weight Uh, to exercise more, to save money, uh, to improve uh, personal relationships or eliminate bad habits. Uh, People tend to make resolutions. Um, I I would be curious to know, though, how many people actually keep those resolutions. I would imagine it would be very, very few. And perhaps that's why some of you have decided you're not going to make any resolutions because you know how it's going to end. Um, Well... The, the truth is, is when it comes to change, the greatest change anybody could ever experience is the change that Christ brings to our lives. When he comes into our life, the transformation is incredible. And it begins by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ and in Christ alone as, as our Savior, as our Lord And it continues as he does his work in our hearts to make us more like himself. True spiritual transformation is a work of God's grace in our hearts. And really, that's what Christmas was all about anyway, when you stop to think about it. God's grace was made manifest to us in the person of his son, Jesus is God's gift to us. And the Apostle John tells us, and we'll be looking at that starting on the 16th, but the Apostle John tells us that um, from his fullness, that is Jesus' fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And when you start talking about grace, though, you can't always assume that everybody knows what you're, you're talking about. I mean, what exactly is grace? Well, in the Bible, the word that is translated grace is the word charis. And that word is, uh, show, shows up 159 times in the New Testament. Grace is an important concept that we need to understand. And the word literally means goodwill or favor or benefit or kindness. And oftentimes translated also as gift. So when we talk about Jesus being God's gift to us, we're talking about the grace of God. And we also talk about grace when it comes to salvation. If you recall in Ephesians chapter 2, 
uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So it's very clear that salvation is a gift of God. And God gives to us what we don't deserve and what we could never earn. Namely, to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled with our Heavenly Father, and to receive the gift of eternal life. But is that all there is to grace? Of course not. Of course not. When you stop to think about grace as a gift, think about all that God has given to us. He has given to us his Holy Spirit. He has clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. And we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Not some, not a few, not most. It says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. God's grace appeared to us that first Christmas, not just to save us, but to change us and to make us ready for his return. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity we have to begin this new year looking at your word and how, um, how gracious, gracious you are in giving us your son, your spirit, your word, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, and so much more. Lord, I pray this morning as we we look at the scriptures that you would be our teacher and our guide, that you would encourage our hearts, and Father, that we would be changed. We would be transformed into the image of your Son, and it's in his name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Titus chapter 2. Going to be looking at a few verses there, verses 11 through 14. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness in worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Now, our text this morning reveals to us at least five things regarding grace, things that will help bring about the transformation that I spoke of earlier and prepare us for Christ's return. Um, you, you might say that grace really acts as the bridge between Christ's first advent and his second. He came in grace. 
But grace has a work to do, and hopefully we'll see that here this morning. So the first thing I'd like you to see as we look at this passage is, is that grace appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, I know your mind's going to be racing ahead because you can fill in the blank. You know enough about the scriptures. You know enough about the Christmas story. You understand grace has appeared. But I want us to slow down just a little bit here. Because that word appeared is important. It tells us that grace was revealed. Meaning that previously it was unknown. It was manifested. It came to light. Now God has always been gracious. I mean, you from the very first pages of Genesis, God is gracious. But you have to remember that his people up until Jesus' coming were under the law. They knew nothing of grace as you and I understand grace. That is, until it appeared. Until it showed up and came on the scene. And what that ought to tell us is that we are a people in need of grace. Otherwise, why show up? Why appear at all if there was no need for it? Paul tells us in Galatians that we need grace because by no works of the law shall any flesh be justified. We are not justified before God by keeping the law, by doing good works, by being religious. And because God's God's grace appeared, we can't take credit for what it has produced in our lives. We, we didn't usher in grace. We are not the originator of grace. We are the recipient of grace. And what's most amazing about this is, is actually how this grace appeared. Grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, just one chapter more further in chapter 3. This is what we read in in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see it there in verse 4? God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ. John puts it this way in John chapter 1. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the grace of God 
appeared to us that first Christmas day in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in Mohammed. Not in Buddha. Not in the Pope. Not the president, whichever one you like. Not in anyone. No other person. God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ. And notice what else it goes on to say. It says that grace appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now, I know some people would love to latch on to that and just say, oh, yeah, see, everybody's going to heaven. You know, Hitler, Stalin, Capone, you know, everybody, we all get to go. My next door neighbor, me, that'd be a wonderful place, wouldn't it? No, that's not what Scripture is saying here. It's not saying that, that all people are saved. But what it does mean is, is that when Jesus came, he made it possible for all people to be saved. His blood was sufficient to cleanse the world of its sins. The requirement was that we repent and trust in Christ alone, that we believe. And I don't think you can see this any more clearly than in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and here's the kicker, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We must believe. If we don't believe, we will not receive the salvation that he so freely offers. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. His death on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world. And then the writer of Hebrews says that he appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, God, God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ because God's plan for redemption was substitution. God's plan was that Jesus would take our place and pay the penalty that we owed for our sins on the cross. That he would die in our place for our sins. That he would take our sins upon himself so that when he stretched out his arms on that cross and they drove the nails through his hands and through his feet, that he bled and died in our place. And in turn, he bestowed upon us his grace. He lavished us with his grace. And the scripture says that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's as if there was this transaction where, where God just takes our sin, places it upon his son, takes his righteousness, and clothes us with it. That's all an act of grace. God's grace appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. He says, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You can't get any clearer than that. We are justified by grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, justification is a big theological word. Try to simplify it as much as possible. But it's, it's the act in which God judiciously, legally, pronounces that you're righteous. He declares you to be righteous officially. Not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness, on the basis of what he did for you on the cross. We are justified by his grace, and grace is only available in Jesus. That's why any attempt to to be justified before God apart from Jesus ends in failure. You can't do it. You can't be good enough to merit God's love, his forgiveness. You can't be holy enough in yourselves. You need grace. That's why it appeared. Salvation can only be found in Jesus. That's why Luke writes in Acts chapter 4, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I know that offends the sensibilities of a lot of people. Because there's a lot of people that like to think there are many ways to God. I mean, we have bumper stickers like coexist that try to make you feel like, you know, it doesn't really matter what religion you follow. Essentially, they're all the same. Jesus is great, you know, but so are these other people over here. And it doesn't really matter as long as you believe. I remember a number of years ago, that was Oprah's big mantra. It doesn't matter what you believe in, you just have to believe. Well, it does matter what you believe. I mean, if you went to the Grand Canyon, right, which I'm really hoping to do this year, but if you go to the Grand Canyon and you could get really close to the edge and, and you said to yourself, I do not believe in gravity, right? And, and you're sincere. You really don't believe in gravity. And you take a step off, which direction are you going to go? Does it matter what you believe? Certainly it does. Does it correspond with reality? That, that would be a good starter. Is it truthful? Jesus put it this way. He said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a pretty exclusive claim. And if it's true, and I believe it is, then you would be foolish to try some other way. Because Jesus is the only way. But God's grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, not only to save us, but it appeared to make us his holy people. And this is the part that I think sometimes we miss. Look with me at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, on to verse 12, training us, 
or teaching or instructing, depending on your translation, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, grace is not just about forgiveness of sins. It's about enabling us and motivating us to live godly lives in the present age. And that present age happens to be between the two advents. Before his first coming and his second coming, in between is where we live. And grace teaches us, instructs us, trains us how to live. I like what Max Lucado said about grace. He says, grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. See, God isn't asking us or telling us to do something we can't do. He has enabled us, which is in itself an act of grace, that by his grace that we can live a life that is pleasing to him. Now, the, the word translated renounce literally means to disown or repudiate. To disown or repudiate. And a great illustration of this comes from the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, John Newton was a slave trader. And for many, many years, um, that's how he made his living. And he tells his story, and you can read about it, you can even see it um, uh, in, in the movie Amazing Grace. But he wrestled with the issue of slavery for many, many years, even after he became a Christian. How many of you guys realize that, you know, after you become a Christian, you know, um, you still have struggles? There are still things that you deal with that God is trying to help you overcome. Well, the same was true for John Newton. And in 1788, 34 years after he retired from the slave trade, he finally broke his silence about slavery. And he wrote a confession, which comes too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Newton repudiated his former life. He disowned it. And he became a powerful voice for God and for righteousness. In fact, he ended up leading a young man named William Wilberforce to the Lord. And it was Wilberforce who passed a bill through Parliament that finally ended the slave trade in England. And so I, I, as an illustration, I'd like you to look at this, this clip from the movie Amazing Grace. And I want you to understand that John Newton is fleshing out for us what it means to renounce ungodliness. John Newton is a good example of what 
grace is meant to do in our lives. It doesn't just save us from our sin. It changes us. It transforms us. It helps us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. But it also helps us to live self-controlled, righteous, upright, godly lives. That's what the rest of the verse says. Too many Christians define their Christianity by what they don't do. We need to understand that grace is not merely about keeping us from doing the things that we ought not to do, but in an enablement to do the things that we should. We must also live holy and godly lives. And grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ to make us holy, but not only to make us holy individually, but to form us into a people a people for God's own possession. And that tells you right there that we are not our own. We belong to him. And he has a purpose for our life that we must be willing to sign off on and say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I will. I will follow you. I will obey you. I will love you. It says that, He came for a people who are zealous or eager for good works. That's a great question to ask ourselves. Are we eager for good works? Well, as God's grace works in us to make us holy, there's one other thing I'd like to share with you. It's in verses 13 and 14. God's grace appeared to prepare us for glory. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have received Christ as your Savior, then God's grace is at work in you in such a way that you can live a life pleasing to God. And what's more, is that you can await Christ's second coming with joyful expectation. You don't have to cower in fear. You don't have to wonder what that day will be like for you. But if you have not received Christ, if you have not experienced the grace of God in Christ, then what is awaiting for you on that day is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Those of us, those of us who have been saved, who, who, who have the Holy Spirit living within us, we have been born again and we await. And it's not a passive waiting. As we've learned just through the season of Advent, we've talked about it many times. Peter tells us that we are to hasten or to hurry or speed up the coming of the Lord. How do you do that? I mean, God's going to come back when he wants to come back, right? 
How do, how do we hasten the coming of the Lord? Well, I think there's at least three ways we do it. We do it in a way is, first of all, we live holy lives. When we start living the way God wants us to live, I think he's going to be pleased with us. I think he's going to say, I'm ready to come back now. But not only that, it, it, we hasten the coming of the Lord as we proclaim the gospel to others. Jesus says the end won't come until this gospel has been proclaimed and preached throughout the entire world. So when we start doing it within our families, in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods, and on our sports teams, that's when Jesus will come back. And I think the, the other thing is, is, is by doing good works. Because Jesus says that we're to let our light shine in such a way that all may see what? Our good works and then what? Glorify God, our Father who is in heaven. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God has given us everything that we need to accomplish his pur purposes. And the certainty of Christ's return acts as added motivation for us to live a life that is pleasing to him. And we don't, we don't do this out of a sense of fear. We don't do it out of a, a, a sense of duty or obligation. Our motive for serving Christ, for loving him, for obeying him, is love. That's our response to him. We love because he first loved us. We respond out of a grateful heart and a desire to be like him. So let me ask you this question as I close. Have you responded to the grace of God in Christ? Have you renounced your sin? And have you received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's where it begins. But it doesn't end there. If you have received God's grace and are a child of God, are you living a holy life? Are you continuing to renounce ungodliness? And are you living a life that is zealous for good works? And how do you know if you're doing those things? As we begin this new year, I want to challenge you all, all of us, to make a faith resolution that this will be a year in which we will grow in our knowledge of God, of who he is and what he requires of us, that we will grow in holiness and that we will grow in obedience, that we will find ourselves more obedient this year to God's commands than ever before, and thus we will be transformed God's grace appeared to us that first Christmas, not just to save us, but to change us and to prepare us for his second coming. It's my prayer that in 2022, God will transform us by his grace and ruin us for anything less than his glory.
Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this new year and all that it means and the possibilities that are before us. But Lord, we know that they just remain possibilities and unless your grace works in us to both do and to will for your glory. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would, in fact, do that one thing, that you would ruin us for anything less than your glory, that this year would not be about us, but it would truly be about you and letting our light shine so that others might see you and come to know you and love you as we do. Father, I want to lift up a special prayer for those in our body who are sick and just dealing with illness, whatever it may be. Father, I pray that you would um, touch them in their bodies, that you would uh, restore them to good health, and that uh, they would uh, be able to gather again with us in person very soon. And Lord, we just thank you um, for all that you've done for us this past uh, Christmas, this Advent season, and into this new year now. And we give you all the thanks and praise for what you have yet to do. In Jesus' name, amen.